You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. promises are full of emptiness, total emptiness, but God's promises are different. Listen to this carefully. Instead of promises full of emptiness, God gives us emptinesses full of promise. Instead of promises full of emptiness, God gives to us emptiness that's full of promise. And that emptiness consists of two things, if you will, two things. The first one, an empty cross. The second one, an empty tomb media tells you that if you just buy this product or do this thing, you'll get what you want. But more often than not, these promises are empty and don't pan out. Today, Pastor Dave reveals that God follows through on his promises. In fact, God takes an empty cross and an empty tomb and fills them with the promise of life. Now here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 25 as he begins his message, The Crux of the Argument. Acts 25, verses 13 through 27. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me, when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not custom of the Romans to deliver any man the destruct to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has an opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I will also like to hear the man myself tomorrow. He said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges 
against him. So how many of you have ever read Dear Abby? Come on. How many have ever read Dear Abby? How many of you still do? The job. Hey, I still do too, I confess. I read Dear Abby. I still read it every now and then. <laughs> Thanks for manning up there. I came across this letter in response to someone's question. A young man from a wealthy family was about to graduate from high school. It was the custom that in the affluent neighborhood that they lived, that the parents of the graduate gave him an automobile, or her, an automobile for graduation. So Bill and his father had spent months looking for cars. And the week before graduation, they found the perfect car. The perfect car that they wanted. Bill was satisfied with it, his father was satisfied with it, and they really had their eye on this car. But on the eve of graduation, the father handed a gift Wrap Bible to Bill. It was a gift-wrapped Bible. Bill looked at the Bible and was so angry with the present, he threw it down in disgust and stormed out of the house. That was the last time Bill and his father ever spoke. In fact, it was his father's death that brought Bill back to the house again for the first time since that incident. One night, as Bill sat on his bed going through his father's possessions that he would now inherit, he came across that very same Bible that he had thrown in disgust that night. Upon opening it, after he brushed away the dust, he found the cashier's check within it. A cashier's check dated the day of his graduation. And in it was the exact amount he needed for the car that they had chosen. A very sad story, very sad story, but true, of promises not believed. Promises not believed, or maybe even promises not understood. You know, as I thought of this story, it struck me in a strange way. I couldn't help wonder, but how many people in the world do the same thing to God? How many people in the world do the same thing to God? In other words, they literally toss aside his wonderful promise simply because they don't understand it. Or simply because they didn't believe that it could be possible. Well, you know, in our world, right? We're all taught that if it sounds too good to be true, it's not true. Right. If it sounds too good to be true, it means it's not. Many of us have taken in by these empty promises that we're leery of anything or even anyone that tells us we can have something for nothing. Something for nothing. Well, the world simply doesn't work like that. You can't get something for nothing from the world. But you know, God gives us something for nothing. God never made a promise that was too good to be true, and he never made a promise that he did not fulfill. The truth of the matter is, the world is full of empty promises. I mean, all you have to do is watch TV for a while, to watch all the advertisements and the commercials. I mean, they're going to tell you that if you want to be happy, if you want to be sexy, if you want to be rich, if you want to be famous, if you want to drive the right car, and if you want to lose weight, buy this product. Those are empty promises. It doesn't take long before we know that we're fooled enough to know that the world's promises are full of emptiness, total emptiness. But God's promises are different. Listen to this carefully. Instead of promises full of emptiness, God gives us emptinesses full of promise. Instead of promises full of emptiness, God gives to us emptiness that's full of promise. And that emptiness consists of two things, if you will. Two things. The first one, an empty cross. The second one, an empty tomb. 
It's the latter of these two. The emptiness of the tune of Jesus Christ becomes the crux of the argument against Paul. The crux of the argument against Paul becomes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the main argument that we're going to look at. See, the definition of this crux is anything that puzzles or vexes. It's the essential point requiring resolution or the central feature of an argument. You know, in our text this morning, we once again see the Apostle Paul being brought forth before yet another ruler. This time, King Agrippa. If you don't know anything about King Agrippa, I'm only going to make one statement about it. He's a member of the infamous Herod family. I don't have to say any more. But Paul had been kept bound in Caesarea now for two years, first by Felix and now by Festus. He's appealed to Caesar, which was his right to do so as a Roman citizen, but still he's held captive. Festus, knowing Paul's innocence, is trying to find some way to specify charges against him before he sends them to Rome. In other words, he doesn't want to send them to Rome empty-handed. He wants to make sure he has in his paper the specific charges, because when he becomes before Nero, and that's who he's going to see. Augustus is just a title for Caesar. He's going to see Nero. That's who he's going before. But he wants to make sure that he has specific charges in his hand. So he asks King Agrippa to examine him. Festus tells the king that he went to Jerusalem and he was asked by the Jews to basically reopen Paul's case. He, he wanted, the Jews wanted him to bring Paul to Jerusalem to they, that they might judge them. But we know why they wanted him there. They were going to lay an ambush for him and they were going to kill him. They were going to kill him again. They were going to try to, to ambush him once more. But Festus told the Jews, no, no, no. You've got to come to Caesarea, which is where I sit, which is where my palace is. And there you can accuse Paul. They came, but once again, no proof. No proof of the accusations that were made against Paul. So as we looked at verses 18 and 19 in today's study, we see this this sentence. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusations against him, such of things I suppose. This is Festus talking. But had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. The Jews didn't accuse Paul of the things Festus thought that they would accuse him. But they seemed to have a problem with something to do with their religion. It seems that said Paul said that this Jesus, who clearly was dead, was alive. And this became the crux of the argument. This became the crux of the accusations. Now, remember, back in Acts 23... When Paul made this exact statement about the resurrection in front of the Sanhedrin, what happened? They wanted to tear him apart. They wanted to rip him to shreds. And what, he was yet before Felix. He said to Felix in Acts 24, 21, that basically the only charge that seemed to make sense was his statement concerning the resurrection. So I guess the question begs to be asked, why is the resurrection the crux of the argument? Why is the resurrection of Jesus Christ the crux of the argument here against Paul and really against Christianity today? The reality is that the concept of the resurrection lies at the very heart of Christianity. The concept of the resurrection lies at the very heart. All prophecies regarding the Messiah, regarding the Son of God, the one prophecy that would prove, that if it came true, that would prove that he was who he said he was is the resurrection from the dead. So the resurrection becomes a puzzling piece, this crux, this essential point, this major point in the resolving this resolution. 
The resurrection is something that you must decide for yourself. See, you either believe in the resurrection or you do not. You either believe in the resurrection or you do not. But let me caution you on this. Not believing in the resurrection probably means that you're not saved. Well, what do you mean, Dave? Paul links the resurrection to salvation in, in Romans 10.10. 10. In Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So that latter part, God raised him from the dead, becomes linked to salvation. It's part of our salvation message. So you realize not much has changed in 2,000 years. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is still the crux of many arguments you can have with skeptics and atheists. The resurrection is the key to the Christian faith, and it's also the key argument of skeptics and atheists who attacked it. Why? Because if you prove the resurrection untrue, Christianity is destroyed. Prove the resurrection untrue, there we have nothing. Absolutely no hope whatsoever. Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Easter. And in this, he says this, quote, The resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. After all, anyone can claim to be the Son of God, but if someone could substantiate that assertion by returning to life after being certifiably dead and buried well, that would be a compelling confirmation that he was telling the truth. Don Stort, in his book, The Case of Christianity, a cross-examination, says this, quote, The cornerstone of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without the resurrection, Christianity has no meaning for humanity. Its founder would have been made a liar and a failure, and its followers are men and women who have no hope. Thus, the importance of the resurrection of the Christian faith cannot be overstated, unquote. The argument against Christianity that comes against us can be found in basically three points for you note-takers. Three points. Number one, did Jesus die? Number two, was his body really not in the grave? In other words, was the tomb empty? And number three, was he indeed seen alive after his death on the cross? Was he seen alive by eyewitnesses? Remember, Judaism law was quite clear. In order to prove something true, it had to be come before two or three witnesses when you went to a a court. So first things first. Before you can have a resurrection from the dead, you must have a death. There has to be a death. Remember that I said that God gave us emptinesses that were full of promise? That statement brings us to the emptiness of the cross. Emptiness of the cross. You know, there are many theories about Jesus' death. We don't have time to go through a lot of them, but let me just bring a couple of them to your attention. Did you know that in the famous book, the Koran, it denies the death of Jesus on the cross? The Koran denies the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, look it up for yourself, because when I read this, I went back to the Koran and I looked it up myself. It's Surah 4, Numbers 156 and 157. It says that Jesus did not die on the cross. And then there's this swoon theory. This swoon theory simply states that Jesus didn't really die, but he was given some sort of a drug or he fainted because of lack of blood. And then when they laid him in the cool, dark, damp cave, tomb, he came alive again. Like I said, there are many others, but the fact of the matter is Jesus really did die. And I can say that because it's a historical fact. It is an historical fact. 
Most scholars in their quest for the historical Jesus consider the crucifixion indisputable. Indisputable. Let me give you a couple of them. Professor and author Bart Aram states that the crucifixion of Jesus on the orders of Pontius Pilate is the most certain element about him. Historian John Dominic Croson states that the crucifixion of Jesus is as certain as any historical fact can be. And John P. Meyer, a historical researcher, views the crucifixion of Jesus as a historical fact and states that based on the criterion of embarrassment, Christians would not have invented the painful death of their leader. Jesus' death is recorded in every single gospel. John's account being probably the best. Why? He was an eyewitness. John was an eyewitness. He was there. It was right before the cross. Roman soldiers, they were eyewitnesses. They testified of his death. They knew he was dead. Even Festus in today's scripture says that Jesus died. So Jesus' death is undeniable, and that's why we look at the cross this morning. That's why we point to the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at it. What do you see? It is empty. It is empty of Jesus' body, but it is full of promises. It is full of promises. The cross is full of promises because in there is hope, hope for you and me. The cross is full of the promise of hope. The empty cross, the promise is that you and I are forgiven. You and I are forgiven by the empty cross because it was on the cross that Christ paid the penalty for our sin. I said a politically incorrect word, sin. But the simple fact of the matter is we've all sinned. Every one of us. We've all missed the mark that was set by God. You, me, the person sitting next to you, the person sitting behind you, the person driving along the street, all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The only person that ever walked a sinless life was Jesus Christ. Everyone else failed. Here's the problem. According to God's law, which we've been studying in Exodus, according to God's law, we know that his law is righteous and just, and he must judge us by his law. So according to his law, the wages of our sin is death. He even says that the soul that sins will surely die. But we know that God's judgment is righteous and just. And because we've sinned, we know that we deserve God's punishment. We deserve eternal death, separation from God in a place called hell. Well, I said another politically incorrect word, hell. However you look at the empty cross, it's a reminder of God's promise to us. It's a reminder of God's promise to us that we have been forgiven. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. God's word tells us clearly that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It was on the cross that Christ offered a perfect sacrifice, a perfect and sinless life on behalf of each one of you. Nobody else could do that. Not one other person could do that. Abraham, David, Isaiah, Muhammad, Buddha. No one else ever lived a perfect life and then offered that perfect light for someone's salvation. Jesus was the only one that ever did that. That's why the Bible tells us that there is no other name given under heaven by which man may be saved. The name of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ breathed those last words and cried out, it is finished, the penalty was paid. On the cross, the empty cross, it was there that his blood was spilt for our salvation. Yeah, he died on that cross. He indeed died. See, then when he died, he was buried. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I know that usually after death, the burial takes place. So 
if Jesus did not indeed die, why would they bury him? Why would they go about wrapping him in the burial cloth, putting the ointments on him? Why would they go through this entire process of, of doing this if Jesus was not indeed dead? The Gospels tell us clearly that he was taken down from the cross and certain women attended to his body for the funeral. Then we're given another historical fact in the Gospels. A tomb was donated by Joseph of Arimathea and they laid Jesus in this tomb. Another historical fact. Even Josephus mentions this. It's another historical fact that people overlook. This is not just myth. This is history. This is fact. An apologist by the name of William Craig Lane said this, the historical reliability of the story of Jesus' burial supports the empty tomb. Then Lane uses Mark's gospel, Mark's account, because it was one of the very earliest written, and it was said to have been written by an eyewitness. Hmm, Who could that be? Well, we know Mark's gospel, they think, was basically Peter's gospel. And when we read in the scripture, it says the other disciples watched from afar off. Peter was watching from afar off. He did see it. He watched from a distance. Lane continues and he says this, quote, Paul, when writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5, quotes an old Christian tradition that he received from the earliest disciples, probably received the tradition no later than his visit to Jerusalem in AD 36, which you can see in Galatians 1.18, if not earlier in Damascus. It therefore goes back to within the first five years after Jesus' death. What does it say? For I delivered to you that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then the twelve. See, Christ was placed in the tomb. A very large stone was placed in front of it. However, when the women came back the next day, it was empty. The stone had been rolled away, and Jesus' body was missing. Now, skeptics will claim, just as as we, we find in Scripture, the disciples stole the body. But skeptics claim that what happened to Jesus' body is still a mystery, just like a mystery of any missing body that goes on. You know, sometimes people do misplaced bodies. Unfortunately, it happens. But Lane, again, refers to the historical account given to this. He said that there are no less than six accounts of the empty tomb. Six accounts. And some of them are found in the very earliest material of the New Testament. I love this. Lane says, historians think that they have hit Peter when they have two independent accounts of the same event. But in the case of the empty tomb, there's six. There's six accounts. So we have evidence of Jesus' death. The historical fact of the burial the empty tomb. And finally, we have Jesus being seen by no less than 500 people, witnesses. Remember I said, in order to prove something in Judaic law, you need to have one or two witnesses? Well, what about 500? What about 500? Lane again says this, quote, Paul's list of eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and his appearances guarantee that such appearances occurred. So so why is the resurrection the crux of argument against Paul and against Christians today? The stories you've been hearing about Peter, Paul, Stephen, and the many other followers of Jesus are meant to inspire you and encourage you. These brave people lived long ago and had the privilege of seeing the gospel message spread from its point of origin, Jesus himself. Their testimony and diligence in spreading the good news of hope and new life changed hearts and saved countless people. 
and continues on even today through the writings in Acts and the rest of the New Testament. However, the lives you were studying weren't without trial. Each disciple of Jesus faced persecution in some form, yet it never swayed them to abandon their faith. What difficulties are you facing for Jesus now? Don't lose heart. Remember that you're sharing the truth and that the truth can set people free. You have the Savior of the world on your side, and He will stand with you through every trial and triumph. We're so glad you joined us for today's edition of Assure Hope as we continue to study the book of Acts with Pastor Dave Shank. If you'd like to listen to more teachings, we invite you to visit our website, assurehoperadio.com. Feel free to download and share Pastor Dave's teachings or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Are you in the Cape May area? If so, we want to meet you. Come join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. at Calvary Chapel, Cape May to learn more from the Word, sing praises to your Lord, and fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Find out more at assurehoperadio.com. Thanks for joining us today on Assure Hope. Rescue